I believe this is our fourth week in a row. Um, I think the Lord's doing something. We want to praise God for that. What moment in Jesus' life or ministry would you have loved to have been an eyewitness of? We've been in Matthew for four years. We've had time to interact with Jesus, his life, his ministry. Maybe there's specific stories or passages or moments where he taught, where you're like, man, imagine being there, hearing that, seeing that. What moment would that be for you? I think back, my favorite story, I think it's just mind-blowing, is the healing of the paralytic, right, where the friend is dropped through the roof to hear Jesus and be healed by him? Would it be the moment where he walked on water? Maybe the raising from the dead, this little girl. Maybe the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe the calming of the storm. What moment in Jesus' life or ministry would you have loved to have been an eyewitness of? It's interesting that no one would quickly respond and say, Gethsemane. No one would want to have experienced the kind of agony and discomfort and the weight of Gethsemane. And yet, the Lord has brought us here together in our series. He's brought us to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. We're back in Matthew. We've just, uh, six weeks ago or so, seen the, the intimacy of the upper room. We saw Jesus institute the Lord's Supper. And in that supper, he broke bread and he gave it to his disciples. He lifted up a cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. And they drank from that cup. They made their way across this valley from Jerusalem up to the base of the Mount of Olives to this little garden. And in this garden, one that Jesus has been to often, John tells us that he's he's often brought his disciples there. So they're familiar with this place. They know it. And it's in this garden that we see that another cup comes to the forefront. A cup that Jesus must drink. And the cup that as he ponders it and thinks about it and comes to the, its imminency of drinking this cup, we see that Jesus has an overwhelming agony in his soul. So for him, what does this cup mean? And for us... Why does this cup matter? Turn with me, will you? Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Let's enter into the garden of Gethsemane. Let's turn our attention there. Let's see what Matthew records. Matthew 26, 36 through 46. 
Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Spirit will be active in our hearts. Show us Christ. Show us our salvation. Change us, Lord. Do your work in our heart and in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. When we think of Jesus' suffering, our first thought is immediately his physical suffering. That makes sense. He's about to endure something horrific physically. And yet, historic confessions of faith point out an aspect of his suffering that we might easily overlook. The Second London Baptist Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 4, says these words in talking about his office as a mediator, his work of salvation. He says this, Enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified and died. We understand the second part of that, painful sufferings in his body. But we might overlook this, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul. That phrase, that's what we see here. Typically, again, when we think about the suffering of Jesus, we think about what happened to him. And we may not quickly think about what's happening in him as he endures and anticipates this suffering. The confessions tell us, because the scriptures tell us, right? Verses 37 and 38, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus is troubled. He is very sorrowful, so much so 
that it could kill him, even to death. He experienced what Leahy says, a sudden, steep descent into the billows of distress. As Jesus draws near to his suffering and death, he experiences an overwhelming sorrow in his soul. And it's in this moment that we see Jesus in a profound way in his humanity. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is truly God and truly man. I was listening to R.C. Sproul uh, give a theological uh, uh, explanation of this passage And he said throughout church history, and even now, it's easy for us to misunderstand and twist the nature and identity of Jesus Christ. He said, oftentimes, heresies are formed when people humanize his divinity. They emphasize more his humanity. But also, they fall into heresy when they deify his humanity. Right? We can't do either of those things. What we see here is that Jesus is man. He is truly, fully man. We interact with his humanity in a very profound and unique way. Gethsemane, this garden, highlights Jesus' humanity. In the depth of his sorrow shows that, and it, and it goes beyond our imagination, doesn't it? It's unique, what Jesus is feeling, what Jesus is experiencing. Yes, Jesus, in his incarnation, in his taking on human flesh, identifies with our state. He takes on our state. He understands our condition. He identifies with us in our weaknesses. But in no way can we understand the depth of the agony and the sorrow and the grief that Jesus is experiencing here. It's unique. Leahy says this, this is no ordinary distress. No man had ever experienced such distress before, and no one would ever do so again. In a unique sense, Jesus of Nazareth was a man of sorrows. His acquaintance with grief was unparalleled. This is a unique moment, a unique distress in the life of Jesus. And turning to verse 39, we see what Jesus does with this overwhelming sorrow. It says, and going a little farther, he fell down on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even in this prayer, we see the intensity of the moment. Right? Jesus has prayed his whole ministry, he's lived a life of prayer and dependence upon the Father. But what we see here, again, is unique. Jesus doesn't just pray. Matthew tells us that he falls face down. Face down. 
John Gill says, this was a prayer gesture used when a person was in utmost perplexity. Jesus is in utmost perplexity. And the, the gravity of the moment, the intensity of the agony, brings him to his face. Jesus. Truly God, truly man. Is on his face before the Father. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where that's all you could do is fall on your face before the Father in your humanity and in your weakness? Have you ever found yourself face down in the carpet, face down in the dirt before your Father? Have you ever known the, the fragility of life the vulnerability of living in this fallen world, in the intensity of the difficulty in which you're facing, all you got is nothing. And you're weak, and you don't know what to do. You feel the conflict and the tension of the moment, and all you can do is fall face down in the dirt on the carpet and cry out to your father. Have you ever been there? That's where Jesus is. He's face down in the presence of his Father in human weakness and agony. And he's crying out. And what is he saying? My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Let this cup pass for me. There's the cup. What is this cup? Well, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll see a number of references that give us an indication of what Jesus means by the cup. I won't refer reference them all, but I will reference one from Isaiah 51. Verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, the cup of his wrath, the cup that he cries out to pass over him is the cup of God's righteous wrath against sin. He's talked about it before. If you remember, the sons of Zebedee come with their mom. Hey, Jesus, let him sit on your right and left. And what does Jesus ask them? Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? He understands that the path to glory must first go through the agony of suffering. The agony of drinking the cup. Of drinking the cup of the Father's wrath against sin. Jesus dreads the horrific experience of enduring all of God's wrath on human sin, and so he pleads with the Father out of his human anguish to find another way. If I could paraphrase the emotion of it for a moment, he's saying this, Father, if possible, find another way. Find another person 
make some other promise, come up with some other plan, make this dreaded experience completely unnecessary. Father, please let this cup pass from me. I absolutely dread the idea of experiencing your wrath. Please, let this cup pass. Again, the agony. Again, the humanity. Do you see that this morning? But Christ doesn't end his prayer there, does he? Christ concludes his petition by an unwavering commitment to do the will of the Father, to obey. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is what makes Jesus so wonderful and glorious. He feels the agony. And yet, in him, even as he struggled, we see here that Jesus desires does not desire, he has no inclination to disobey the Father. His desire to obey the Father outweighs his human impulse to seek escape from the anguish. Not as I will, but your will be done. Probably a good moment for reflection as we consider the human struggle that we have to obey, given the tension of two competing desires in our heart. Taking it a step further, I wonder if the phrase, not my will be done, but yours be done, could be a helpful phrase when we face this tension, this, this agony of soul. As we interact with the will of God and know what he's called us to do, but there's this tension, there's this aversion to do what's sacrificial, what's good. I wonder if that phrase, nevertheless, not as I will, but yours be done, wouldn't be a helpful thing to consider and reflect upon. You see, in this moment, Jesus is an example for us about how to face temptation. And we see that he faces it prayerfully, in deep agony. And he goes not once, but twice, not twice, three times in this unsettled, agitated state back and forth where he's praying, he's going to the disciples, they're sleeping. He comes back and he prays again. He goes to the disciples and he, pray, and, and he comes back and he prays. And through this whole process, he is receiving strength from the Father and then is resolved to walk in faithfulness and obedience. And so what we see here is that Jesus submits to the Father's will to endure the Father's wrath. For our salvation. Not my will be done, but yours. He's resolved. He submits to the Father's will to, to receive, endure the Father's wrath for our salvation. There was no other possibility. He understood this. The only way for sinners to be saved from their sin is for someone else to die and receive the punishment that was due to it in their place as a substitute. It was the only way. Hear this. The only way for you to be saved from sin and the wrath that is due to it is for Jesus to drink the cup of his wrath for you. If he doesn't drink it for you, 
You will have to endure it. You will have to experience it. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that Jesus willfully, voluntarily, and submissively drinks the cup so that we don't have to. And so he obeys. He submits an act of devotion. He feels the dread, but not so much as to be an obstacle in the way of his devotion to the Father. Isn't that wonderful news this morning? Someday. 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 We ask, amen? And so Jesus is resolved. There's one interaction with the disciples I think is telling. It's a contrast. We see the way Jesus faces this moment, and yet the disciples, so different. And he came to the disciples, verse 41, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. While Jesus prays the disciples sleep, we see such a contrast here. Jesus is keenly aware of the human tension of a willing spirit and a weak flesh. But the disciples, not so much. They feel no sense of urgency. They miss the gravity and the weight of the moment. And they fall asleep, failing to pray for strength. And yet Jesus gives them instruction giving us, again, this example to follow. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And we see, again, this whole process concludes, verse 45 and 46. He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The time has come. Judas is here. He's come with the battalion. His betrayer is at hand. In strength and in prayer, Jesus is resolved to obey. He's resolved to suffer. He's resolved to save. Amen? What are we to do with this passage? What are we to do with this? To be honest, I was most drawn to D.A. Carson's simple phrase, simple instruction. He says, our best response to Gethsemane is hushed worship. Makes sense. You just sit here. see it, we interact with it, we we consider it, and our best response is hushed worship. Gethsemane does a way of bringing us low in silence, doesn't it? As we contemplate the agony in his humanity and also his willing sacrifice for us. But I had some other thoughts as well. 
beyond this, because of Gethsemane, we can know and trust Jesus as the one who drank the cup of God's wrath for us. This is central to the gospel. We understand what Christ has done. We understand the nature of his salvation. He drank the cup. He, he, he absorbed and satisfied all of the Father's wrath against sin. We're called to know this. We're called to trust in this. To know that we don't have to drink the cup now for our sin. That he drank all of it for us. That those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, there's not one drop of wrath left in the cup. It is completely dry. He drank it all for those who trust in Christ. So see the Savior. See the salvation. Trust in Him. Cling to it. And rest assured that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That He drank the cup for you. And while it is empty, there's another cup that is full. Psalm 116 tells us about another cup, the cup of salvation. He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That because of Gethsemane, we're invited to drink of the cup of salvation. We can see the, the beauty of Revelation 22:17. Where, where it tells us, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water without price. Thirsty we are in this brokenness and humanity, in the agony of living in this world. Thirsty we are. And Jesus offers to us the cup of salvation from which we can freely drink by faith in him. It's the emptying of one cup and the filling of another, which we are invited to drink freely. So see Christ, trust in him, and drink, thirsty sinner. Amen? Such wonderful news that Jesus' submission to drink the cup of wrath enables us to drink the cup of blessing and salvation. I think because of Gethsemane as well, we receive comfort in the most agonizing of life circumstances. And some of you are there right now. Trying to clarify, Lord, what is your will? Trying to find another way out in the midst of a difficult situation and, and, and just feeling the tension of desires. And you know what the Lord's calling you to, but it's not easy. You feel weak. And Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Friends, we have a faithful high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. All the uniqueness of the agony that he has endured means he knows where we're at. He's with us, and he invites us to draw near to him for grace and strength in our time of need. And so Gethsemane tells us that we can take comfort in the most agonizing of life circumstances. If Jesus can entrust himself to the Father in this situation, we can entrust ourselves to the Father in any situation in which we find ourselves in. Amen? Christ knows. He sympathizes in our weakness and agony. Draw near to him in grace, for grace. And last, I think that we gain strength and a strategy to face temptation. I've already said this, just want to reinforce it. He tells us what to do in the face of the enemy. Watch. Be on alert. Don't be drowsy spiritually. And pray. Go to your Father. Seek Him. And memorize that phrase. When you're faced with the tension and difficulty of sin and you just don't know what to do, you're not just struggling, just say it. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. There's so much here in Gethsemane. I've done my best to hit the highlights. The truth is, We're in a moment where Jesus is suffering intensely. In this garden, we're face to face with his sorrow, his grief, his agony. But at the same time, we see such love here. Jesus loves the Father. Perfect love, eternal love. Not just emotional, but a love that leads him to obey no matter what it cost him. Jesus loves the Father. But he knows why. He loves his church. He loves his people. The people he intends to save. He loves us. There's such agony here. There's such love. Truly, Gethsemane is bitter. But as we consider its implications, we know that Gethsemane is also, there's a sweetness to it for those who know and trust Christ. So let's not forget Gethsemane. Let's not forget the agony. Let's not forget his love for you and me. Let's not forget Calvary. Amen? That's actually the refrain of a hymn that we're going to sing uh, after communion. Uh, It's an old school one. You may have heard it, sang it before, maybe not. If you don't like it, you can blame me. Because I said, I want to sing this song. It's this, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for Christ, his love, his perfect work, 
and the salvation that he secured for us through his obedience. We praise you that he drank the cup of wrath so that we might drink the cup of salvation. Lord, apply these words to every person here, those who face temptation, those who are wrestling with agonizing life circumstances, those who are trying to know the fullness of who you are, those who are struggling to to have faith, those who are weak. Lord, whoever is here, I pray that you would apply these words to their life and heart. Not our will, but yours be done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.